Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 4. Last week, I made my way through the part of the book of Joshua that covers the Israelites' battles in southern, then northern Canaan, wrapping up with the list of all the kings defeated by Moses, then all of the kings that Joshua defeated, both of these found in Chapter 12. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the narrative in chapter 13. And with that, let's get started. Joshua 13 begins with what appears to be a skipping forward in the timeline. I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, that the wording makes it look like some time had passed since the Israelites crossed the Jordan. I'm going to dive into that section in just a second but need to point out one more thing to be on the lookout for. While the last chapter ended with a list of everyone the Israelites defeated and wiped out, this part starts with those whose fate was the polar opposite, those people that remained. I'll let the text do the rest of the talking, and do know that many of these will be covered in depth in the future. From the text, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and God reminded him of this. At the same time, we get a listing of all the places they still needed to conquer. And here goes. All the regions of the Philistines, which had five kings who lived in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Also the land of the Geshurites. The Geshurites' territory was said to stretch from Shear, which is east of Egypt, north to the boundary of Ekron. We're also told that much of this territory is in Canaan. There were the Avum, who lived in the south of Canaan, then the possibly generic Canaanites. The territory of Mira, which was, at least at that time, controlled by the Sidonians. More on them in a second. The land that stretched from the Aphek, which bordered on that held by the Amorites, also listed were the Gabalites, the territory of Lebanon, at least that part toward the east, from Belgad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, just outside of Lebanon, in the hill country towards Misrephoth Maim. Then the Sidonians are listed again, with God telling Joshua that he, meaning God himself, will myself drive them out before the Israelites. Finally, God tells Joshua that he's only to allot the territory previously outlined by Moses and to the nine tribes, plus half of Manasseh that can claim territory west of the Jordan River. And that's all in the first paragraph of chapter 13, about as dense of a part of the text as you will find. While it doesn't really make for compelling reading, it does give me what probably amounts to many episodes worth of topics to cover. The next paragraph is almost equally as dense, and walks through the territory held by the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. The first part, actually most of this section of the narrative, recounts history I already covered, like the oft-mentioned kings Og and Sihon. But there are places that I'll get to later. Two places that remain to be conquered, the Geshurites and the Malkathrites that are said to live within Israel to this day, meaning when this part of the book was written down. 
Then the narrative bogs down with the rehashing, for the most part, of the specific boundaries of each tribe. First Reuben, then Gad, then half of Manasseh, all three settling east of the Jordan. And there's something that needs to be pointed out, or better stated, I need to point out something that isn't there. Nowhere in this list does it say that these two and a half tribes did not conquer any of the territory, meaning they conquered all of it. Remember that, if only for this episode. Chapter 14 continues this reiteration of the allotments and boundaries, with one clarification, and that's what was given to Caleb and his family. Recall that Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies of the twelve sent forty years earlier who did not hesitate to recommend an immediate occupation of Canaan. Because of their fate, they were rewarded with living to see the crossing of the Jordan. Now, over forty years later, and possibly sometime after that, both Joshua and Caleb are very old men. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah and will, of course, settle within the prescribed boundaries of that tribe, and within these, his family is given specific territory. I'll spare you the details of that boundary, and instead focus on something else. A little nugget in the text. In this case, what Caleb said specifically to Joshua, paraphrasing the Judean spy, who by this time was an old man. He said, I was 40 years old when Moses sent me out to spy the land with the others, and I brought him an honest report. But my fellow spies reported the problems to the point that the people were dismayed. Despite that, I trusted God. Then Caleb reminds Joshua of what Moses told him. Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholeheartedly followed God. And now the important part. So, instead of my more typical paraphrase, a direct quote from the New Revised Standard. And now, as you see, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel was journeying through the wilderness, and here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. End quote. And that little tidbit helps to firmly root a timeline. Caleb was 40 years old when he was sent as a spy. After that, 40 years were spent wondering and now they're about five years after the crossing of the Jordan, and Joshua is just getting around to the formal, and likely final, allotting of the land. What this points to is that all of the battles I covered in the past few episodes were not immediately won, but instead occurred over years, give or take over five years. And more work is left to be done. Back in this part of the narrative, Caleb tells Joshua that he should be given the hill country formerly occupied by the Anakim, and where apparently their walled cities remain. There is some conquering left in this area as Caleb, along with his family, and potentially the tribe of Judah, 
promised to drive the remaining Canaanites from this region. Joshua does indeed give the hill country to Caleb, a region that included Hebron. The chapter wraps up with an interesting tidbit, that Hebron was formerly known as Kirjath Arba and was named for a great giant warrior. After the allotment, the land saw peace. At least that's what we're told at this point. The next chapter has more to say, but I'm getting ahead of myself, and that's chapter 14. Which gets me to Joshua 15. The first paragraph, which is rather long, delineates the boundaries of the land allotted to Judah, very redundant with previous mentions of essentially the same boundaries. The boundary narrative takes a break and tells us how Caleb came to control his specific Judean allotment. He, along with his fighting men, drove out from Hebron the three sons of Anak. Anak was considered the forefather of the giant Anakim. So these three weren't literally his sons, but his giant descendants. After winning there, Caleb put Debir in his sights, a city formerly known as Kirjath Sefer. This time, his tactic was different. He told his men, Whoever attacks Kirath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. His nephew, Othiniel, ended up taking the city and winning his cousin as his wife. But that wasn't all, as, just for a second, we hear from Aksa. She goes to her new husband and tells him to ask his now father-in-law, Caleb, for a field. We're not told how that conversation between the new husband and wife went, but he didn't ask Caleb for the field. Instead, Aksa rides a donkey to her father's house, and as soon as she dismounts it, she says, Give me a present. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me springs of water as well. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Once again, a bit of detailed information about how the land was divided among the various families, and also insight into how troops were motivated, among other things. Moving along. At this point in the chapter, it circles back to all of the towns found within the territory of Judah, list after list. Once again, I'll spare you. Then a teaser for what's to come a few hundred years later. But the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. So the trend continues, and that is that the tribes settling west of the Jordan still had peoples to conquer, work to be done. And now we're beginning to see what to this day means. Recall that at this point, we're at least five years after the Jordan was crossed. And, sitting in our 21st century AD, we have thousands of years of hindsight, which the writer certainly didn't possess. But we now know that Jerusalem would remain under their control until King David took it. David was king around 1000 BC, and the Israelites crossed the Jordan sometime around 1400 BC, at least according to some timelines. Taking these two dates into account, and we can see that Joshua was written down sometime in these 400 or so years. 
All of this gets me to Joshua 16. This very short paragraph describes the boundaries of the tribe of Ephraim, and they too had land remaining to be won. In their case, it was held by the Canaanites who lived in Geshur. When Joshua was written, these Canaanites were still living in Ephraim's territory, but had been enslaved. And so wraps up the short and to-the-point chapter. Moving right along, 17 begins with the boundaries of the western half of Manasseh, list after list, including how a man with only daughters received his allotment. Short story, the girls got theirs too. This part wrapped up with the list of cities that were in the territory, but the Canaanites hadn't been driven out, at least not yet. But, as the text says, when the Israelites grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Meaning, among many other things, at least that sentence was written well after the other events recorded in that part of the chapter, and the Canaanites were enslaved. Then something different happened. The tribe of Joseph was unhappy with their allotment. Recall that way back, way, way back at the end of Genesis, when Jacob was dying, he called his sons in and blessed them, except for Joseph. Instead, he called in Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and blessed them both. Their takeaway from this was that they were now on equal footing with their uncles. Now, to be clear, these two tribes were given territory in a fashion similar to the others, so that part of the history was fulfilled. I'll let the book of Joshua tell what happened. The tribe of Joseph spoke to Joshua. Why have you given us only a single portion as an inheritance, since we are a numerous people whom all along the Lord has blessed? Joshua replied, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear ground there for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites, in the Rephahim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The tribe of Joseph responded, The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots of iron. Both those in Beth Sheen and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are indeed a numerous people, and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it's in a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. There's a lot to unpack in here. The tribe was expected to gain more territory for themselves and from well-armed Canaanite foes, whose possession of iron weapons was noteworthy and in specific locations. I'll unpack all of this when I circle back to the deeper dive into this part of the history. Chapter 18 speeds up the narrative a bit, and also fills in the blanks about how much territory the Israelites had conquered to this point. All of the people gathered at Shiloh, where Joshua addressed them. And if you've been keeping count, you'll recognize that seven tribes still needed their territorial allocation reaffirmed. This didn't escape Joshua, 
as he addressed them, he spoke to them, saying, How long will you be slack about going in and taking possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may begin to go throughout the land, writing a description of it with a view to their inheritances. Then come back to me. They shall divide it into seven portions, Judah continuing in its territory on the south and the house of Joseph in their territory on the north. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage, and Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. Just before the assembled trios left, Joshua addressed them again, reiterating what he told the larger group. The men left and traveled throughout the land, recording all that they saw. They also divided it up into seven different pieces. When they returned to Shiloh, Joshua cast lots, and however the lots fell, the land was assigned. The first tribe assigned territory by lot was Benjamin, with its land falling between Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh, though the text is more concise in naming the latter two as the tribe of Joseph, for the reason I covered a minute ago. The rest of the chapter goes on to describe the boundaries of Benjamin's allotment and the cities that fell within it. It does not say that any of it remained to be conquered. Chapter 19 begins with the land allotted to Simeon, and once again walks through the boundaries. It ends with the curious sentence. The inheritance of the tribe of Simeon formed part of the territory of Judah, because the portion of the tribe of Judah was too large for them. The tribe of Simeon obtained an inheritance within their inheritance. You can probably guess this was going to lead to strife between the tribes. Next are Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali, boundaries and cities described, and neither encroaching on their neighboring Israelites, nor was their territory remaining to be conquered. After this was Dan, and again cities and boundaries. Then we're told they fought against Leshem, captured it, and put the people there to the sword, meaning they were slaughtered. The chapter wraps up with the territory given to Joshua's family. Actually, what happened was all of the tribes got together and decided Joshua needed land too. So he was given the town of Timnath-Serah in the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim. He settled there and rebuilt the town. And with that, the division of land was complete, except for what to do about the Levites. First things first, the Levitical cities of refuge which is the entirety of chapter 20, with a reiteration of why they were necessary. As a very short refresher, a person who unintentionally or mistakenly killed someone could flee to these cities for protection. They would have to remain there for a trial and until the high priest died. Then they could go home without fear that the family of the slain would seek revenge. Moving along to chapter 21. 
After the cities of refuge, the Levites were allotted many other cities throughout the territories of all the other tribes. And typically, whenever they were given a city, they also received the pasture land next to it, giving their livestock a place to graze. All total, the Levites were given 48 towns. At the end of this chapter, we're told that God had subdued all of the Canaanites who were living in all of the territory when the Israelites crossed the Jordan. With the conquering complete and the territory secured and divided, the fighting men from the eastern tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were sent home. This is in the very beginning of chapter 22. When they left, they were allowed to take their portion of the booty captured from all of the defeated Canaanite cities and towns. Booty that were told included silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with a great quantity of clothing and livestock. Besides the obvious, this list is significant as it shows what was valued at the time. The things that would seem less significant today would include the iron and clothing. But this was at the beginning of the Iron Age, and well before the Industrial Revolution made clothing as inexpensive as it is today. One of the first things the eastern tribes did on their trip home was to build a great altar. And this marked the beginning, perhaps, of the squabbling between the tribes. Now, to be clear, this altar was constructed on the western side of the Jordan, in Canaan, so not in the eastern tribes' territory. Well, the odds are it was in the territory of Manasseh, just the part that was west of the Jordan. Do note that Manasseh occupied the vast majority of both banks of the Jordan as it flowed from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Back in the text, the other tribes got wind of the great altar, and the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And do note that these eastern warriors had just helped these same people win their territory from the Canaanites. So much for gratitude and that didn't take long. Then the Israelites, meaning the western tribes, sent the priest Phineas to the eastern tribes, along with what are described as ten chiefs, likely high-ranking family members, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. These men caught up with the eastern tribes in Gilead, likely on the east bank of the Jordan, so after they had built the altar, left, and made it home. When they finally caught up, they let the accusations fly. What is this treachery that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away today from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar today in rebellion against the Lord? And they continued, most of which I'll spare you. Just know that the western tribes accused the eastern ones of stoking the wrath of God against everyone thinking the altar was meant to replace the one in the tabernacle. But the western tribes do give the eastern tribes an out, telling them that if they had made their own land unclean, they can come to the other side of the Jordan and settle. Just don't continue to rebel against God. After hearing all of this, the eastern leaders finally spoke up, telling the accusers that what they did was in reverence of God that they are being falsely accused, 
that their only intent was to memorialize that, despite the rivers separating the people, that they all worshipped the same god. My takeaway from this was that the eastern tribes expected to be detrimentally viewed as separate from their western brothers, and they were quickly proven correct. They also reaffirmed that the only altar for burnt and grain offerings, along with sacrifices, was in the tabernacle. This eastern plea was enough to satisfy the western tribal leaders, along with the priest. After this, they all returned home. The very last sentence in the chapter wraps up with, The Reubenites and the Gadites called the altar witness, for, as they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Joshua was curiously absent from this whole debacle. And this provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Joshua chapter 23. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.